0: I think the problem we have right now with both uh, the government in Israel and the government in uh, the United States is there really is no strategy per se. And as I communicated to a friend in the Israeli Defense Force, I said, everybody understands the need to eradicate Hamas. The question is, first of all, can it be done under the circumstances? Is it realistic to do that? And then secondly, how does how is Israel's case helped when with each passing day, whatever memory there is of the horrific acts of Hamas against Israeli citizens is gradually erased by new horrific acts in gaza caused by israeli fire largely airstrikes but also some ground fire i don't think uh, there's an understanding of that right now there's the view that there are no such things as civilians those are just combatants and if they don't want to be combatants then they should leave and go somewhere else but we know that there are at least a half a million people located inside northern gaza because that's where they live and they really have nowhere else to go and many have decided that they'd rather die at home in dignity than die in the desert somewhere i I don't think that particular set of circumstances really helps Israel's case at all. But I understand why the Israelis feel the way they do. The problem now is that in the United States, for many, many years, I would say decades, there has been a careful cultivation of uh, not just support for Israel, but the readiness to effectively do whatever the Israelis think is appropriate. In other words, unconditional support for Israel without much question. This is a combination, I think, of two things. One is certainly money that is poured into the pockets of politicians on the Hill and into presidential campaigns by Israeli supporters who want to ensure that whatever we do, we always support Israel. And on the other hand, I think there's also the role that is played by Christian evangelists who are convinced that uh, they have a holy obligation to fight for or support Israel. But the truth is, (laughs) we do have an obligation to think about the United States and its interests. And I don't think we're giving that much thought at this point. Our war stocks are exhausted. We've shipped almost everything we possibly could to the Israelis in terms of, or excuse me, to the Ukrainians in terms of ammunition, along with a great deal of equipment. Our own forces are much smaller uh, than they were in 1991. And yet there is this underlying assumption in everything that we do in Washington that we are largely unchanged from the nation of 1991 that our armed forces are effectively the same. They are not. We don't have much depth in our forces. And in Israel's case, the Israelis are going to be supported by us almost entirely by naval and air power. And we don't have the thousands of aircraft fighters that we once had. We don't have hundreds of bombers. Our inventories of missiles are not endless. So there has to be some thought about what the means and ends are. And by the way, if we're supporting the Israelis as we want to, are they doing things that would inadvertently bring us into conflict with other nations that, frankly, we don't necessarily want to fight? Where is where is our end in all of this? In other words, we want to support Israel. We want Israel to exist. I certainly sign up for that. But how much more do we want to do than simply help Israel defend itself? We're now about to do a great deal more, potentially, given the numbers of forces at sea that we've got in the eastern Mediterranean, the high probability that we will send even more, probably to the Persian Gulf, the Indian Ocean, and that these naval forces uh, could be used against forces that are not necessarily involved in the uh, confrontation with Hamas. So I I don't think people have, have thought all of this through. The other thing is that there's an assumption that nothing has changed in the Middle East. You know, if we go back to 1973, and I remember that very vividly. I was a cadet at West Point, and we ultimately followed what was happening in 1973 because people that were instructing us, officers told us, you know, if the Israelis should collapse and the Egyptians or the Syrians should break through and and move into the heartland of Israel, we could well be called upon to deploy and rescue the Israelis from destruction. Now, that didn't happen. Fortunately, the Israelis were able to master the situation. Today is different. The forces that the Israelis face are far more sophisticated, more complex. Uh, the populations in the region have changed insofar as they're, they are more educated, more capable. There is new technology, new ways of waging war, and new actors on the scene. It's not just uh, Iran, which is in its own right a, a large regional power. It's also Turkey, which, as you know, as a NATO member, has the largest armed forces in NATO just after the United States, and as far as its army is concerned, it has a different force from us and could mobilize 2 million men in the space of 30 to 40 days. So, Turkey is a force to be reckoned with at sea, in the air, and on the ground, and there appears to be a willingness on the part of the Sunni Muslim Turks to actually cooperate with the Shiite Persians and Arabs, which has not been the case in the past. So, the region strategically has evolved, and I don't think people are taking that into account.
1: So uh, if this war would, uh, would, uh, expand, uh, by other actors getting involved, how would you see the most likely scenario playing out? Because, uh, uh, I, and I got the impression that the Biden administration was uh, pulling a, a little bit back after the meeting with, uh, with Egypt because it looked for a while that the U.S. and Israel might be pushing for, uh, well pushing the entire uh, gaza population uh, well cleansing it out of gaza pushing it into uh, the Sinai of of uh, egypt but uh, after the meeting with egypt uh, it appears that the us was uh, uh, well committing itself to not uh, displacing the the population for, well uh, yeah uh, out from gaza so i'm just uh, but still there's so many ways for this to escalate do you uh, how how do you see this possibly going moving forward because the israelis will definitely continue into gaza who's going to join in first will it be you know west bank hezbollah uh, one of the neighbors iran
0: well the more uh, hundreds each day of, of palestinians who are killed or wounded the worse the situation becomes regionally because today thanks to new media that did not exist in 1973 the populations of the middle east of the entire islamic world from morocco to indonesia can all watch in real time what's happening and again uh, the the memory of what happened in israel on the 7th of october is now increasingly uh, vanishing in the sea of destruction and casualties in gaza so that's a huge problem and you know i ask again and again how does it help to do what israel is currently doing i mean the view is exactly what you said effectively ethnically cleansing uh, Gaza. Well, normally we Americans do not support ethnic cleansing. That's not something that we promote or accept. So the longer this goes on, the tougher it is to, to sell the idea that you just mentioned of, of simply pushing these people out. Secondly, uh, I think that the closer we come to confrontation in northern Israel, especially with Hezbollah, the more likely we will see all of the Shiite militias in the region as well as potentially Iran become involved. And in Washington, there is almost a, a nonstop drumbeat for war with Iran. It's really quite disturbing. There, again, there's no thinking. It's all emotion. Iran is the, uh, at least in theory, the source of all evil. Therefore, it must be attacked and destroyed. Uh, the Russians are not going to sit quietly in the corner and watch Iran be destroyed by the United States Armed Forces. That's just not going to happen. And today, Iran is much more capable in terms of air defense, weaponry, and theater and tactical ballistic missiles, unmanned systems, you name it. Uh, So Iran is in a position to launch enough theater ballistic missiles that cities like Haifa and Tel Aviv could be reduced to ruins. Uh, That's something we have to take into account. Uh, Assumptions are that we will attack Iran before Iran gets a chance to do it. I would prefer that Iran stay out completely, which means I'd prefer that Hezbollah stayed out. Hezbollah has 140,000 of its own rockets and missiles and could easily destroy the city of Haifa, which sits right across from the Lebanese border. Then, of course, you have the problem that you mentioned in Egypt. General Sisi and the Egyptian government have worked very hard to maintain good relations with Israel. And Egypt has been a friend to the Israelis when it comes to dealing with Hamas. You know, a lot of people don't know, for instance, that during the Camp David Accords negotiations, uh prime minister begin actually offered gaza to uh, president sadat of egypt and sadat said no thank you we we don't want gaza uh, that's another entire kettle of fish that we can't cope with egypt is a is a huge country but it has a population uh of what 80 million plus sitting on an infrastructure that could barely support half that number Asking, uh, asking them to take in more people is not something the Egyptians can easily do without enormous uh, financial and material support. But even then, the Egyptians would be viewed by everyone else in the region as having betrayed the Arab people and the Muslim cause. So I don't think the Egyptians can do that, but the Egyptian population is enraged right now for all the same reasons that we've been discussing. They see the number of more than 3,500 children killed by these bombings In Gaza, and they are infuriated. They've forgotten all about what precipitated this, which was the Hamas attack on Israel. He may not have much choice. His population may force him into a hostile posture vis-a-vis Israel. They may even say, why aren't you committing the Egyptian army to protect the people of Gaza from the Israelis? On top of that, you have Hezbollah that says, if you go into Gaza, we will attack. Well, the Israelis, instead of going in in great force all at once, are now moving incrementally uh, along several axes from time to time into Gaza. They're beginning to stay in some areas, but they haven't gone in massively. I think they're trying to conceal, you know, the invasion, if you will, from being identified as such. I don't know that that's going to work. And if Hezbollah says that's it, we're attacking because you've attacked our Muslim brothers in Gaza, then I would expect an, a complete uprising and and a revolt in uh, on the West Bank. So that means the Israeli forces are tied up. Now, the expectation is that between our air power and offshore cruise missiles and so forth, we can support the Israelis against Hezbollah. Well, if we do that, then you're bringing in Iran and potentially Turkey, because the Turks are now, as you you know from Mr. Erdogan's comments, regard this as a war crime, what Israel is doing in Gaza. They're going to present a case in The Hague, but we see a lot of evidence for readiness on the Turkish part to intervene. They have a very large navy. In fact, they have the same submarines, diesel-electric submarines that are built in Germany, very fine submarines, some of the best in the world, that the Israelis have. The Israeli submarines were built by the Germans. So you've got these submarines also in the Mediterranean. And right now, uh, that's a very lethal threat to any surface fleet. And we have our own submarines in, in the Mediterranean. I don't see how you get past some sort of confrontation at sea. And once you begin sinking one another's ships, Uh, Once you begin shooting down one another's aircraft, it's only a matter of time until the armies move. And I can tell you something, the IDF is very good. It cannot withstand the assault of the Turkish army. That's not going to happen. The Turkish military is excellent, and they are fierce fighters. And once committed, it's war to the finish. Uh, So it's hard to see a good way forward. And as we've said before, how does Russia deal with all of this? You know, the Russians actually accommodated Israeli security interests for many, many years in Syria. The Israelis made it very clear to the Iranians and to the Syrians that if Iranian forces were established on Syrian soil in any way, shape, or form, the Russians would not prevent the Israelis from launching strikes into Syria against those locations and those people. And so the the Russians absolutely turned off their air defense radars and equipment and let the Israelis attack when the Israelis felt the need to do so. Uh, that is not going to happen in the future for the very simple reason that Israel cast its lot with Ukraine. And the Russians are not going to forgive or forget that. They remember that the Iranians stood with them and supplied them with equipment, supplied them with unmanned systems, supplied them with raw materials. And Israel did everything in its power to help Ukraine. So the Russians are going to become involved if this, Conflict is not contained. And in the meantime, the Peninsular Arabs, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, all of them have no choice but to rise up as one against Israel. And I think that's too much for Israel. And if you're, if you're like me, and I want to make sure that the Israeli state survives and doesn't end up looking like Ukraine, then I think we need a different way forward. And the other thing is that, and many Israelis who are astute observers of, of the scene point this out. Hamas is not just a group of fighters. It's not just 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 fighters. It's an idea. Killing an idea is much more difficult than killing people. You can kill people for a very long time, but killing off ideas doesn't work nearly as well. The way you defeat an idea is by offering a better alternative. And right now, from the standpoint of the Palestinian Arabs, and from the standpoint of many of the people in the region, there is no better alternative to fighting and dying. And that's not a good thing. And again, that's a, that's a no-win situation for the Israelis. So I don't have any easy solutions. I'm just sitting here wondering when the president of the United States is going to exert some leadership. You know, we had a conference in Egypt not long ago with many of the great powers represented as well as the uh, various Arab states. And, and that conference was a, an effort to come to terms with the problem. Many of the people walked out saying we have to have a two-state solution. Others said different things. But the point is, it was an attempt to do something. But we were not there. Oh, we had representation. But the president and his leaders in his cabinet were not there. When are they going to step up and recognize that this is a very dangerous situation? And all the air and naval power that we have is not going to be enough if all of the states that I mentioned earlier weigh into this combat. And finally, and this is something I'm very sad to admit, we have no army to send. What we have in the United States Army that has any combat power is sitting in Poland, Lithuania, Romania, Moldova. Uh, Moving it in in any sort of timely manner is almost impossible. And if you can't put a substantial ground force into the region, air and naval power will not be decisive. Uh, Air and naval power alone will not decide conflicts and decide outcomes. Of course, now then, the question is, what about nuclear weapons? I still see no evidence that anyone in Washington, Moscow, or Beijing thinks that's a good idea. But you've got a couple of wild cards. Of course, you've got the Israelis who have nuclear weapons. And then you have the Turks, who have been promised access to nuclear warheads whenever they want that access by Pakistan. Which means that if the Turks decided we're going to get into this fight, they may well turn to the Pakistanis for those warheads so that they can deter Israelis from using their nuclear weapon. This is not a good situation, Glenn and uh, historically American presidents have usually intervened and said that's it stop. We did that in 1973. We exerted similar influence in 67 and back during uh, 1956 during the Suez crisis. where where is the leadership from the United States? All I see is reaction emotion and the readiness to essentially do unconditionally, Whatever the Israelis ask us to do, and I don't think that's a good policy position to be in.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that uh, the reactions from uh, Russia were more cold now towards Israel, and uh, uh, well, I picked up on that as well because I I remember I met uh, Israeli prime well former Prime Minister uh, Olmert uh, uh, five years ago in Kazakhstan, and uh, you know he was speaking very strongly about. How the uh, well Israelis and uh, Russians would you know be intimately close uh, for for well pretty much in perpetuity that this was uh, uh, mm-hmm. a, you know a very strong relationship ever since the Second World War uh, well then with the Jewish people of course but uh, uh, and I also noticed that Russia has always been very careful to have a balanced view not to speak too harshly against the Israelis but obviously after uh israel provided uh support for israel sorry for ukraine uh a lot of russians saw this as a stab in the back and i was also uh well even a bit surprised by the more strong language now that i hear from not just putin but other people close to kremlin about uh, the actions of of israel so so i was also wondering then how, how how do you see this war in gaza or israel uh, impacting the other war we're having now in Europe? Because, uh, well, obviously, the first impact would be that a lot of uh, artillery shells and weapons which were promised to Ukraine was then uh, redirected to Israel, which is, of course, higher priority for the United States. Uh, but are there any other ways this will have an impact on the Ukrainian war? Ukraine war, sorry.
0: Well, let's be frank about the Ukraine war, if you, if you want to call it that. Uh, that's lost. The uh, Ukrainians lost that war a long time ago, and there were there were several of us at the very beginning of this that warned that whatever the Ukrainians did, they could not possibly prevail against Russia. And we worried a great deal about the readiness on the part of the United States and other NATO countries to effectively intervene in Ukraine itself on behalf of this Ukrainian government. Fortunately, that has not happened. But we've spent billions of dollars uh, essentially supporting the regime there, equipping its armed forces propping it up so have other nato members to no avail Uh, we think uh, there are a half a million ukrainian dead dead ukrainian soldiers Uh, we don't know how many were wounded but we know the hospitals are full Uh, we don't know what the actual population is at this point because so many ukrainians have fled the country who could get out ukraine is finished to be blunt the kindest thing that we could do right now is to suspend any more military aid in favor of only humanitarian support and to ask for an audience with the Russians and encourage our European allies to do the same and come to an agreement. But that involves standing up publicly in Washington and saying, you know, we were wrong. Nobody will do that. Nobody will admit defeat. Now, Newsweek, which is not exactly a right of center, uh, you know, journal or, or magazine by any stretch of the imagination has now published an article about Zelensky. Zelensky just a few months ago was a hero of the West, you know, the man of the hour who was going to save everyone from the Russians. Now he's being sort of scorned. He's become an object of derision. Uh, He's finished. Uh, One wonders how much longer he will wait till he flies to one of his villas in Venice or Miami or somewhere else. And of course, the, the theft, the corruption, the human trafficking, everything that you can imagine that is wrong in a society is absolutely out of control in Ukraine which is something many also warned about when this war began. And as I'm sure you're aware, we found lots of weapons that we provided to the Ukrainian army that have shown up into the hands of Hamas and presumably Hezbollah and probably in the hands of others who we would prefer they not have those weapons. So uh, I think Ukraine is finished, but we are going to send billions of dollars to maintain the fiction that it's alive. And we will keep that fiction alive, uh, presumably through the next election and after the next election there'll be an admission well that's over it's time to move on i mean i don't know if you remember it but and it may not have been you glenn but several people asked me when this thing in ukraine ends what will we do and i always said the same thing what did we do at the end of the vietnam war we left and we changed the subject and the subject here is already changing it is now israel 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 ukraine is a distant memory And the Republicans or so-called Republicans on the Hill who are advocates for war in Ukraine have now said, well, it's time to separate spending for Ukraine from spending for Israel privately because they know it's lost and they don't want to spend any more money. There are some Democrats who feel the same way, but the Democrats want to maintain the fiction through the election, to insist that something good has happened in Ukraine when it hasn't. And everyone is shifting to Israel now. And everyone is backing Israel, which makes sense because we have a long relationship with Israel. I like Israel. I like the Israelis, and I'm neither an evangelizing Christian, nor am I a Jew. I think Israel deserves to exist. But we haven't answered the, the first-order questions about strategy. What do we want out of this? What do we want the region to look like when it's over? You know, where, where are we going to adjust our expectations and goals so that we have something that is practically attainable and achievable? Because at the end of this, we would like Israel to exist. We're not looking at that. We're not asking those questions. We're not pursuing any strategy geared to that outcome. We're pursuing a strategy of confrontation, the way we did in Ukraine. Constant, uninterrupted confrontation at the expense of the Ukrainian people. We're doing it now with Israel. And that's why I'm concerned that at the end of this process, Israel may look like Ukraine, which I don't think is something we want to happen.
1: Yeah. Now I'm not sure if this is the same article, but I saw either Newsweek or Time magazine a few days ago in which, uh, yeah, Zelensky advisor anonymously uh, will argue that uh, Zelensky, you know, believed so hard in this victory. But uh, as the people around him recognized uh, that uh, again, this is their word. uh, They said that uh, Zelensky has deluded himself. Uh, they recognize that they're out of options and they're not winning. So these were quite strong words coming from an actual adviser. But they also pointed out that it was impossible to say this to Zelensky that uh, you know he would simply give new orders and then march out. So uh, uh, you know under this uh, view, the, the argument was that you know since the game is over, uh, all this aid coming in, there's, there's no point anymore. So it, it, the stealing just intensifies. So the aid coming in, everything is plundered. So it kind of begs the question: How how will this play out? Will uh, will, will the people turn on Zelensky, will uh, will the front begin to collapse as uh, the weapons, well NATO had already run dry according well to their own statements and now what's the little that's left is being prioritized to Israel. Uh, in addition, there's a fatigue I guess if you want to call it in terms of supporting uh, Ukraine. So well, what, is, um, what do you think is going to be the main break? Will it be economic, will it be political? Uh, will it be a military defeat? Uh, How do you see this whole thing unraveling? Because uh, uh, I see the media shifting now. I see even within Ukraine, I see more voices coming forward saying that, you know, we are reaching the end. And, uh, you know, NATO's confirming a lot of these numbers. Uh, So it's, obviously, (laughs) I thought before that Ukraine would crack, but we keep pushing in weapons. Uh, They keep uh, pulling people off the street and sending them to the front. So obviously, uh, you know, you can always continue going a bit longer, but it does seem like the party's reaching an end here. So well, how do you see this? Uh, uh, how do you predict the next
0: month going forward? Next month, sorry. Well, you know, the Ukrainians have already experienced a lot of desertions, a lot of surrenders. Uh, resistance is not consistent up and down the line. Some areas there are still Ukrainians fighting as fiercely as they can, but there are many other areas where they are not. I think the real question is, what do the Russians do? I know from everything that I've been able to find out from day one that the last thing that President Putin and his government wants to do uh, is rule Ukrainians. In other words, they're sitting right now on territory that is historically Russian and for the most part uh, populated by Russians, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, they call them, but they're really Russians. Obviously, he has a permanent interest in two more areas. One is Kharkov and the other is Odessa, both historically Russian cities, Russian-speaking cities not Ukrainian but beyond that the rest of the country is in fact Ukrainian now the further west you go the more thoroughly ethnically Ukrainian as well as linguistically and culturally Ukrainian the country is but the russians don't want to don't want to intrude there they would prefer that those people rule themselves the problem is they don't want it to become this this rump state part of nato they want it to be neutral they don't want it to be a platform for attack against russia that remains Their permanent bottom line. So they're going to look to the Europeans. I don't think they expect us to change our views or adapt in any way. So I think instead they're looking at the Europeans right now and let's look at Europe. Europe is running into very serious financial and economic trouble. I don't think anybody has missed what's happened in Germany, which is the ultimate engine of scientific industrial power in Europe. It's been on a suicidal path now for months, and the German population is very unhappy with it. But at the same time, More and more Germans, in fact, more and more Poles and others have figured out this uh, tremendous Soviet-like threat from Russia isn't coming. The Russians are not going to invade Eastern Europe. They don't want to invade Eastern Europe. And they're beginning to look internally at their own societies. And Germany, France, parts of Scandinavia, Italy are overwhelmed and overloaded with people that were brought in in 2015 and after, mostly from the Middle East and Africa, That most Europeans have now discovered are never going to assimilate, did not come to assimilate, and either have to be expelled and returned to where they came from, or the Europeans themselves face destruction. Now, this doesn't have to be exclusively violent. It can simply come over generations through reproduction. But it's very obvious that Europe has serious troubles inside itself that have nothing to do with what's happened in Ukraine. And those troubles are going to have to be addressed in some fashion. So I think uh, the hope is, I I suspect in the Kremlin, that there will be somebody to talk to in Berlin eventually, somebody to talk to in Warsaw, somebody to talk to in Vilnius, somebody to talk to in Helsinki and Stockholm that is sober-minded and realizes there's no imminent threat from Russia. The threat is internal. When that happens, I think they expect to get some sort of settlement. I have always questioned NATO's viability once this war began. I still doubt seriously that the NATO alliance as we've known it will survive. I think eventually something else will replace it that is purely European. Because again, the United States has its own set of problems. If you ask Americans, what is the most serious national security threat? They'll tell you the Southern border, the influx of millions of illegals that should not be in our country. And we too face difficult times ahead, economically and financially. Though we won't admit it publicly, we do. You know, our debt-to-GDP ratio is over 120%, which seems small when you compare that to Japan's problem. But we have other problems to do with the absence of our manufacturing base. It's a it's a fraction of what it used to be. How do we employ people, people that have no skills, who are pouring into our country that we can't find housing for? I mean, these things are disastrous things to have to have to face up to. No one wants to face it in Washington. Washington has almost become Disneyland on the Potomac, where they are not living in a realistic world they're living in a fantasy world and this is back to the middle east well we'll send the navy well the navy today is is uh, not the navy that it was 30 years ago and more important our navy is still structured for the second world war in terms of how it's organized and how we plan to fight and technology has changed those things don't work as they once did Uh, and we're going to face adversaries that fight us differently for which we're not prepared this is what we've seen in the ukraine we keep boasting about the the best trained and largest and most capable army in NATO was Ukraine's army. Well, that hasn't worked out very well because the Ukrainians were in fact trained by us. Our sainted leaders in uniform did advise them it's been a disaster. So how will things turn out in the Middle East with new states and new military establishments like the ones in Iran and Turkey uh, also as part of the Regional equation uh, arrayed against us, against Israel, against the United States. I don't know, but I don't think it'll, I don't think it'll go well. So on the one hand, uh, you know, Henry James, the famous uh, author in, in England once said, sacred cows are never slain. They simply vanish. I think Ukraine is just going to vanish. The question is, what happens in the Middle East? That's a tougher nut to crack. That's not going to simply vanish. Do we have to fight more there, endure destruction, embarrassment, losses of our own before people sober up and recognize this is too dangerous to continue? We convene a conference and the great powers come together and decide we're going to have to divide this child one way or another to put an end to this. I don't know. But we don't live in 1879. We don't have Disraeli. We don't have Bismarck. We don't have uh We don't have those kinds of people on the stage, certainly not in Washington. And uh, as a result, I think we're going to hit a brick wall in the Middle East at some point before anything changes at all. Well, it seems
1: that uh, by attempting to help one side, we've contributed to make some conflicts uh, unresolvable. I'm thinking, well, first in Ukraine, I think that conflict could have been resolved very easily as, uh, well, ne- neutrality would have uh, resolved that issue altogether and uh, it simply would have to be NATO saying, you know, we're not going to expand and then there wouldn't have been a conflict but of course now that, you know, we pushed all in and uh, Russia decided to solve it itself by seizing Ukrainian territory uh, yeah, they're simply I don't see any settlement in which uh, there can be an agreement but uh, my question was uh, about the similar issue in in Israel because uh, it, it would seem as if the the two state solution could have been a way to solve this but it's that ship has probably sailed because uh well i saw this article now in times of israel a few months back pointing out that uh, in israel if you include west bank gaza the, the population between the israelis and uh, uh and well non-israeli jews are now uh, well almost the same uh, some even have uh, that you know the palestinians plus arabs uh, well, the non-Jewish population are now uh, slightly larger. So it begs the question: How, besides this very specific conflict, what would be the wider solution now? Because you uh, you can't if you can't integrate, uh, you can't preserve a Jewish nation state if the Jews are the minority. So uh, if and if there's no two-state solution, how how can this? What well, what can you do? Do you expel the population? Do you set up systems where? Two sets of rules. Some refer to as apartheid. One set of rules for yeah, the Palestinians, another for the Israelis. But if this is the case, you're going to have a, it's going to have a perpetual conflict. So, is there any solutions at all to this conflict? Because it looks like this is becoming a big showdown. Where, uh, well, as Erdogan said, a possible conflict between the cross and the crescent. This is uh, quite dramatic.
0: Well, remember Sultan Echen, uh before he died stated publicly that the war between east and west was over the war between north and south was only just beginning uh, i hope not uh, because i think that's another war we can avoid but you're not going to avoid it by forcibly integrating israelis with muslim arabs that's not going to work so that's off the table but you've got to have a conference involving the united states and the other great powers where the united states listens To what the other great powers had to say and listens to the other states in the region we have a bad habit of tuning out whatever we don't want to hear and listening exclusively to what the israeli leadership says at once and then doing it if we continue down this road i fear for israel's existence because i just don't think that there's enough military power available to deal with the inevitability of the kind of war we just described particularly if it involves the Turks and the Iranians, as well as the Arabs, with Russia standing in the background. People people mention China. China has its own internal problems. It's got severe economic difficulties right at the moment. Chinese have no real martial history at all. They do not have a history of invading other people's countries. There's no appetite for it. But what the Chinese do want is peace and stability, because they're very dependent upon the oil and natural gas that comes out of the Middle East, as well as much of the food that comes out of Africa. So their interest is in finding a solution and helping to subsidize that solution if it can be found. At the moment, no one is in the listening mode in Washington. And it's very clear that Mr. Netanyahu is not going to listen to anything except more ammunition, more support to kill more of his enemies. So until Mr. Netanyahu vanishes from the scene and the Israelis change their direction, I don't see any change, period, because we have a government that seems to be feckless. Our government is just there. All right, you want more, we send you more. We we want you to kill Russians. We hate Russians, which makes no sense. Now we're saying we'll give you whatever you want because we hate your enemies too. Your enemies are ours. That's not really true. We've had very good relations with many, many countries in the Middle East for a long time. I certainly don't want to go to war with the Turks or the Iranians, and I think we could have good relations with those countries as we've had them in the past. But there are people in Washington that are dead set against it. So as long as we are in this rigid, inflexible mode of it's our way or the highway, the rest of the world is not going to take our highway. And I think it's a mistake to believe that the rest of the world is afraid of us. I don't think they are. I think they sense that we are weaker than we were 30 years ago, and indeed we are. They're they not stupid. They're not ignorant. They can view the economic and financial situations that that exist in our countries. So I don't have a good answer for you. I, I fear, as I said at the beginning, that we will lead or Israel will lead itself, but we'll certainly help them down this road into a hell of our own making if we're not careful. And the outcome will be Ukraine in the Middle East i certainly don't want that so i'm all for somebody sitting down and looking carefully at this and just deciding on another way uh, but i can't recommend anything in the current set of circumstances because there's no willingness to accept any suggestions that's that's the best i can say
1: yeah i guess uh sh- last short question would be how do you see the conflict in uh in israel impacting the relations between russia and turkey of course uh, uh um much like you stated now. I think it's uh, uh, a lot of people in the US would be quite apprehensive to go to war with any of the major Arab states, being you know Egypt or uh, well, any of the Gulf states for that matter. But the issue of Turkey that is, uh, if Turkey would intervene, um, yeah, this will almost be incomprehensible. But, uh but I was curious how how would this affect uh, Russia and Turkey because um, in many ways they see they are on opposite sides in Syria they're on opposite side the the, the Turks were trying to be very neutral in Ukraine but they still provided uh, plenty of support uh but nonetheless you know they they looked after their own interest it was understood but uh but now uh, Russia and Turkey see themselves uh somewhat sharing the position even though the turks are much much stronger in their language and the russians obviously would never intervene
0: directly against israelis that could never happen uh well i disagree with that i think that could happen really oh yes and and directly against us i think that's a mistake to assume that but russia isn't going to come in anytime soon you know there's an old proverb about the russians that people in eastern europe repeat from time to time Uh, the russians are slow to mount but when they do they ride fast in other words, the Russians are cautious. They do not move recklessly as we do. They think things through. They look at their own interests and the interests of those around them. The Turks and the Russians, I, I sat down recently and tried to count the number of conflicts and wars that the Russians and Turks fought against each other. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 or 60. Uh, so there there are no illusions about the past. And Russian and Turkish interests are not, not identical but they have managed to come to solutions in the Caucasus and uh, they have come to solutions down in Ossetia, in Southern Ossetia. Uh, and and they've worked together when it has been necessary to do so. And, uh, you know, Mr. Putin was very helpful to Mr. Erdogan in internal crises when we certainly did nothing. So I think uh, they are capable of putting aside their differences. <coughs> but... uh One of the things that worries me is there's a tendency in Washington to regard Mr. Erdogan as just a blowhard. And he's not. He's very serious. There's a reason he's still in power after all of these years. And he's poured a lot of money into the Turkish military. So he's not bluffing. And I think we thought that Mr. Putin was bluffing for many years when he continued to tell us what he would or would not tolerate. So I think the, the problem now is not so much, what will they do? I think we know what they will eventually do if pushed hard enough. Question is, what are we going to do? What are we going to do to prevent it? Uh, Syria could become a very useful highway for Turkish forces to move very rapidly uh, from one end of Syria to the other and reach the Golan Heights in the, in the space of 12 to 18 hours with hundreds of thousands of troops. And uh, Mr. Assad in Damascus, And his government are not going to stand in the way given the situation that is developing in the region because they too are muslims they may be different they may not share all the same views but like the iranians they can agree with the with the turks on what should happen to israel if israel does not stop what it's doing right now so uh, i i think we should not underestimate the readiness of the russians to back the iranians and potentially cooperate with the Turks against Israel and the United States and the Mediterranean. In fact, I would go one one step further. Uh, if you talk to anyone in Russia who is familiar with the situation, knows the Russian armed forces, they will tell you that the Russians would like nothing better than to send some of our ships to the bottom in the Mediterranean. Just imagine you're a Russian and you look at what we have tried to do to them in Ukraine. You listen to the stupid utterly incautious statements made by people like President Biden and the Secretary of State, Blinken uh, and a host of other people, Sullivan, fools in the Senate, saying, well, the Ukrainians are killing Russians. The more they kill, the better. What kind of a remark is that? You know, Since since when do we hate Russians? It's absurd. And the Russians have not forgotten those things. And if the opportunity presents itself to do serious damage to us, they'll take it. And remember, we still have to project power six, 7,000 miles away from North America. And projecting that power is not easy, it's expensive, it's difficult, and it's fragile. If Russia comes into the war in any way, shape, or form, they have submarines that can operate in the Atlantic and prevent anything we want to send in terms of reinforcement to the Middle East from ever reaching it. We need to think. You know, Frederick the Great once said, don't plan for what you think the enemy will do. Plan for the worst thing your opponent can do to you. He was right. We're not thinking about that.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about, uh, uh, well, at least that's impressions I got uh, in, in Russia as well, uh, that uh, after two years, almost two years of well, the United States and uh, NATO being in a position to well kill Russians uh, uh, through the Ukrainian proxy, that uh, without the ability to hit back, that uh, if an opportunity presented itself, they would yeah definitely take it. Uh, anyways, uh, unfortunately, we, we ran out of time, so I'm gonna have to let you go, but I want to thank you again. Uh, and I, I really hope that, uh, in both, uh, in the Middle East and in Ukraine, we can rediscover diplomacy and you yeah, have some common sense return, uh, to get an end to this bloodshed. So, uh, uh, thank you so much again, Colonel. It's been a great pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Glenn. Bye bye.